invite you to open uh, to our scripture passage today. We're looking at Exodus chapter 5. Uh, we're going to read the whole chapter. So that's Exodus 5, uh, 1 to 23. Afterward, <clears throat> Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, where he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people, so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. Then the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went... To Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your eternal and unchanging word. Thank you that it's a living word that divides between the corners of our heart and the most indistinguishable pieces. Your word is a scalpel that cuts us open remove our sin and to heal us and make us more like you, Jesus. 
We pray that you would help us this morning. Would you speak to us, Father, and feed us with your word? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most discouraging things in life is when you think it's all downhill from here and you're wrong. <laughs> There's a, a couple mountain bike trails that I like to ride on over in Harriman, just off Mountain View Corridor. And uh, they, you kind of wind up the hillside of the foothills over there to the top of this plateau. And there's a couple of loops that you can do. And then on the way back, it's pretty much all downhill from here, except for this one section before you get to the trailhead where the trail kicks up for maybe just like an eighth of a mile. So not much, but it's enough for you to lose all your momentum and have to start pedaling again to get up over this little rise. And the thing is that little hill is pretty much insignificant compared to the like 1500 feet that you've already climbed to get up to the top and yet there is something about it when you are going down for so long your mind thinks okay it's all downhill from here I don't have to work anymore and suddenly that little hill saps all of your mental resolve and you just feel so weak it might as well be climbing Everest it is so tough it is way tougher than it needs to be because you thought well it's all downhill from here and we all have that same struggle in life you might think, oh, okay, now it's all downhill from here. And maybe you've been facing a number of medical issues and you finally get a diagnosis and you get some treatment and things start to be looking better, only to have a half dozen new issues come six months later. And maybe you're making progress in getting out of debt and you're finally, you're close to getting the credit card paid off, but then something else breaks and you've got to put it on the credit card. Struggling with an addiction. You've been clean for, for months and feel great, but then you have two horrible days at work, and that night you give in and lose all that progress. You've given your life to God. You're trusting Him, and you're trying to live for Him, but then you lose someone that you love, or you fall into a deep depression. A relationship blows up, and it feels like you're right back in the pit where you started. You thought it's all supposed to be downhill from here until it's not, and it crushes you. And what do you do when God's promised redemption, but you find yourself living in hell. That is the situation that Moses and the Israelites find themselves in. God has promised to redeem them and to lead them to a good home, and yet it seems so far away. After the first encounter with Pharaoh, Pharaoh doesn't say, oh yeah, you guys can go. No, the only change is not that the Israelites have more freedom. It's not even that they're any closer to being free. No, what happens is Pharaoh works them twice as hard. They're twice as beat down as they were before. We're in a series working through the book of Exodus that we've called Three Gifts. And the gift we're looking at in the first section is the gift of redemption. And we often think that the gift of redemption means, oh, it's all downhill from here. God's going to redeem me. Things are going to be easy. But we, like the Israelites, learn very soon, redemption is never as quick or easy as you thought it would be. And so what do you do when it gets hard? What do you do when God's promised to save you and yet you're still living in the darkness? And the answer is we praise Him, we praise God, for his promises. We praise him for his promises. That's what I want you to remember this morning. We praise him for his promises. And we're going to very simply just walk through the story and then we're going to look at how it applies to us. So first, uh, going through the story. Before this, so two weeks ago, uh, Moses met up with his brother Aaron and they went to the Israelites to let them know, hey, 
Moses has met with God and he's heard your cries and he's going to redeem you. And if you remember from back then, one of Moses' greatest fears was that he wouldn't be received very well by the Israelites. Right? They years ago had rejected him and he had to run away from them. And so he's worried, well, why will they take me back this time? So Moses was likely very nervous before coming to meet with the Israelites. And yet things go remarkably well. At the end of chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And they, the Israelites, believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. The thing that Moses maybe most feared in this whole thing that God was calling him to went remarkably well. They, they, they responded. They didn't question him. They said, yes, praise God. They worshipped. And you can so easily imagine Moses saying, that first hurdle is down. Wow, everything is going to go so well from here on out. But then Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they give the message. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Now, Moses and Aaron don't argue. They basically are just messengers. This is God's message here. Listen to it. Now, remember back then, we'll look at this more as we get on, but people believed there were lots of gods, right? God was just a very generic term. It didn't really tell you which god. It's why knowing the name of your god was very important, right? The, the name of your god was kind of like the correct phone number to make sure your god got the message that you were trying to send him or her. And so people thought back then it would be silly to believe in just one god or an all-powerful god or a god that's in charge of everything. I mean, what kind of crazy person would think that? Gods had territories. They had regions of control. Some gods were stronger than others. This was the environment that the Israelites and the Egyptians and everyone in that culture lived in. And because there were so many gods, there wasn't even a category for wrong beliefs because there could be a god that liked that thing or did that or was in control of that certain area. People often would maybe pick the gods that they thought would be most advantageous to them, that would benefit them the most. It's actually not all that different from today, right, where so many people say, well, how can there just be one truth? And so you kind of create a mishmash spirituality of, of the gods or the practices or spiritual practices that you like and what works for you. Which is why I think it's actually kind of a, a silly objection when, when people say about Christianity, well, how can you Christians say it's the only way when now we know so much more than back then and we know there's all these different religions well, actually, that is exactly the environment that Christians grew up in. Those, it's exactly the environment that God's people grew up in, where they were surrounded by all these people who thought they were crazy for believing in just one true God. And so they continue, Moses and Aaron. They say, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, this sounds a lot cooler than it actually is, right? It sounds like they're asking for some vacation days to go out to the wilderness and have a party. Now, we're not sure why they call it a festival instead of worship or offering sacrifices, which they do later on. Maybe they're making their request sound more reasonable to Pharaoh. They think, hey, he's more likely to say yes to this. But Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh's response isn't that he doesn't believe the God of Israel exists. He probably thinks, yeah, I'm sure that God exists out there. But it's more like earlier that day, he was flipping through the latest edition of the Forbes 100 Most Powerful Gods list, right? And he was checking his rankings in it. And he was kind of mad because he had dropped from two to four. And like, what do they know about? It? I should be number one, right? But in that entire list, as he was seeing everyone's rankings, he never saw any mention of this God named Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so now they come and talk about this God. He says, sure, your God exists, but he doesn't even make the top hundred. I don't need to worry about him. Why would I listen to him? 
Okay? So, and, and, and even more than that, he said, and if he's your God, well, a great job he's doing of caring for you, right? Look, I'm your God. You're serving me right now. What good is this God? He has no power here. And so they say it again. The God of the Hebrews. And again, they, notice they specify which God has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he might strike us with plagues or with a sword. So they get more specific here. We need to go to worship him. And if we don't do this, this bad thing might happen to us. Now, it's hard to say if this is something like a veiled threat. Like the us includes you, Pharaoh. Something might happen, bad happen to you. Or it could be that Moses, if you remember two weeks ago, uh, the sermon that Pastor Brian preached, where there was that incident where God threatened to kill either Moses or Moses' son because he hadn't followed the, God's command to circumcise his son. And Moses is thinking, you know what, after that I learned it's really good to do what this God says because bad things might happen. Just trust me on this, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh responds, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people from their labor? Get back to your work. Pharaoh here is like that boss that sees no reason for you to take vacation. I mean, you already get weekends off. What more do you want? And so he continues. Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. He said, these people are doing so much work. If we stop them, the whole economy will grind to a halt. All this talk about a three-day journey which probably doesn't mean like a weekend retreat, but three days maybe specifies how long it will take to get to where they want to offer sacrifices. Three days could be slang for saying a long trip, right? This isn't just, we're going we're gonna to see you on Monday. No, it's something more than that. But Pharaoh says, you take them away and all these things are going to happen. All this work is going to stop, right? It's like, do you know how many people are working in the Amazon warehouses right now? Right? And you are distracting them so they aren't able to pack their boxes and make their quotas. And if you take them away, how many people will not get their packages in two days? Right? Do you know how important their work is? And so Moses and Aaron leave. They struck out. And later that day, Pharaoh makes a little change to the, the employee handbook. We will not supply you with straw. You need to bring your own straw to work. And you need to make the same number of bricks. Pharaoh's thinking, they apparently have way too much time on their hands. They have too much time that they're daydreaming about all these ideas of going away for a three-day journey to worship. I mean, where do they think they are? Europe, right, where everyone takes the whole month of August off? No, this is Egypt. We work hard here. I can't believe how lazy they are. Give them more work so they will take the, it'll take their minds off their distractions and their dreams. And so the people go out and gather stubble for straw. Straw is used to strengthen bricks. And it's usually taken from the inedible stalks of grain or certain vegetables that is mixed in with the brick to strengthen it. But now, they aren't going to be provided straw. They've got to go find their own. But you don't just find straw lying around. What you find is stubble, which is exactly like it sounds. Little uh, broken bits of straw that were unusable. And so they're you know, sweeping it all up into their hands and trying to use that. And the Israelites are trying, but they can't make their quotas. So the Israelite foreman... They go to Pharaoh, they explain the situation. They're saying, here's the list of all the things you've told us to do, and there aren't enough hours in the day to do it. It's not our fault we aren't meeting your goals. If we had the straw, we could do it, but you're not giving us the supplies that we need to do to get our job done. Now, does Pharaoh, like any reasonable boss, listen? <laughs> no. He says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. 
Right? I'm sure every one of you have worked for a boss like that. Who you go to him and say, I can't do all this. And he says, well, you know, Bob gets all the work done. He doesn't seem to have any problems. And in your mind, well, you're like, that's why Bob's been divorced three times and has no relationship with his kids. Like, I don't want that to be my life. Pharaoh implies the real reason they aren't getting all of the work done is because their mind is filled with all these daydreams of going off for a nice weekend vacation or a week-long vacation, heading out of town to worship your God. It's classic gaslighting, which is like the most unintuitive term I've ever heard of. But it basically means if someone denies your logical explanation of what's wrong and then gives you like the most unlikely reason for why that is occurring and they put the problem back on you, and it's so crazy, you're like, can this really be true? But they say it with such confidence and say it over and over again that you start to think, well, maybe I am the crazy one, right? Maybe the problem is me. Maybe I am lazy, even though I'm working 23 hours a day. Hey, the problem, Pharaoh says, isn't that you don't have enough straw. It's Moses, and he's gotten into your head, and he's giving you all these crazy ideas of a nice life where you can worship your God instead of work for me. So when they leave Pharaoh's presence... They go and they find Moses and Aaron and say, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh, and his officials have put a sword in their hand to kill us. At the end here, the Israelites are asking God to curse the very people that he sent to save them. They are more upset at Moses and Aaron who are trying to help them than they are at Pharaoh who was the real problem. So our passage starts out with things looking good. God had met with Moses. He'd given them some pretty impressive signs. And then they go to uh, the Israelites and the Israelites welcome Moses and they like what he has to say and say, okay, this is good. And, and they think, okay, maybe this thing will actually work. Everything is falling into place. But then at the end of the chapter, Moses returns to the Lord and says in verse 22, Why, Lord, have you brought this trouble on us? About this trouble on these people. Is this why you sent me? Moses started out the chapter with his head held high, his chest out. He's ready to go and conquer Pharaoh. And then at the end, he returns to God with his shoulders stooped, questioning everything. God, you said you saw their suffering. So why has this plan brought more suffering on them? You haven't done any of the things that you said you would. Now, God told Moses back in uh, chapter 421 that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. So this shouldn't have been a surprise to Moses. But like so often it happens to us, oh, we hear all the good stuff and we just gloss over that little detail about suffering or hardship. Oh, that's just the fine print. Well, it turns out sometimes the fine print really matters. This isn't going to be as easy as we thought. Man, I thought it was going to be all downhill from here. But I realized I was just on a false peak. We're still at base camp and we have so much further to climb. So this brings us into the second part of the sermon, how we apply it to us. What do you do when you realize it's not all downhill from here? What do you do when you get a glimmer of hope in your life? But six months later, you find yourself in a deeper darkness. What do you do when you're trying to help someone? But all they do is turn on you and are convinced that you're the real problem. And what we do is we praise God for his promises. Now, in order to find that answer, we've got to step outside our passage. I want you to 
uh, I want to take you to Psalm 56, verses 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, and I'm not afraid, what can man do to me? I happen on this uh, passage just by accident through my own personal Bible reading, and yet th this verse jumped out at me because it, it showed me something I never had really noticed before here. I really like the, the NLT translation where it says, I praise God for what he has promised. I praise the Lord for what he has promised. Right? God's words are his promises. There's no gap between what God does and what God says. His words are promises. And what struck me is we often think of, I'm going to praise God for the things he's done. Right? I'm going to see this cool thing that God does, and then I'm going to praise him for it. Later in Exodus, we see the Israelites do this. They sing a song with Moses, praising God for how he rescued him. But what do you do? How can you worship? How can you praise when God has promised you that deliverance, but you're still living in a hell? When he's promised to make things better, but the darkness is closing in fast? How can you worship with a joy when God hasn't acted? And if anything, things have gotten worse in your life. You praise God for his promises. Those things that he has said but have not yet come true. You trust his promises more than you trust what your eyes can see and your ears hear. Now it's easy to praise God when you see him work. It is a whole other level to praise him for the things he has said but you have not yet seen. It's, it's, it's so much harder to praise him when all you see is darkness. But so much of the Christian life is lived in what feels like this huge gap between the promises of God and your experience of them. And so if you can learn to praise God for his promises, you will find an access to joy even when you're living in the hell of Egypt, you will have access to something that is always there because God's promises will always break into wherever you are. See, our passage shows that God's presence doesn't always guarantee immediate results. Like, we want to think that, right? Oh, God showed up. Everything's going to be easy now. It's all downhill from here. God's with me. What can go wrong? Turns out, a lot. Now, when things go wrong in our life, we, we tend to think, oh, well, that's because God isn't with me, right? God probably left me somewhere. I made a wrong turn. But that's not always the case, because look here. Moses had indisputable evidence that God was with him. And yet, by the end of his pa our passage, when God's been with him the entire time, it looks like the plan has backfired. Right? We were trying to stop their suffering, and all we did was increase it. And we've got to realize as well that God's presence in our life doesn't, as much as we wish, it will not immediately change your circumstances for the better. And sometimes it even makes them harder. And so what do you do? You praise God for his promises. Because those promises are just as present when you are in the pit. They're a ray of hope. His promises are like x-ray vision for our universe. They show you a reality that is deeper than what your eyes see. The promises of God allow you to like pull back the curtain on the stage of the universe so that you can see the next act in the play before it comes out in public. And note, 
Here also, the people that are deeply suffering don't usually think right. And Moses has come to help the Israelites, and yet they end up cursing him. They blame him for their troubles. And so many of you have probably experienced that, where you have been wounded by this person that you are trying to help. The person that you so desperately want to see get out of this horrible situation starts to see you as the enemy. And what do you do in that situation? You praise God for his promises. Because you know this will not always be the case. One day the truth will come out. The lies will melt away and what is true will be seen. That this person will see what is actually happening even if they don't right now. You trust in those promises of God to make things right. And then you get back to work with wisdom to try to help those you've been called to help. And yet praising him for his promises is so hard. Like, how do you trust a promise? Right? We saw in our kids' message, we break promises all the time. Sometimes it's intentional. Most of the time, it's just because so much is out of our control. How do you rest in a promise more than the pressing pain of your life right now? Job 13, 15, it's one of those verses that is just so far out there, so radical, it feels trite to almost quote it, because like, how can you actually believe this? Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And that's the ultimate expression of praising God for his promise. When you're pinned to the ground and the knife is in God's hands, yet I will praise him for his promises. Now, I don't know how Job had the depth of faith of that statement. I don't think I could have. And just read of his life, and you'll realize the persecution that he's experiencing, right? It's not the persecution we have today of, you know, getting a letter from the HOA for not having green enough grass. Not that that's never happened to me or anything. <laughs> this is real persecution. Some, someone whose life has been ground into the dust, and he says, God, I know you've been in control of it, and I trust you, even when you got me pressed down into the pit. It's a statement of Job's statement is the statement of someone who trusts God's promises, which feel so far out there. He trusts those more than the boils that are covering his body from head to toe. He says, you know what's more real in my life right now? The promise of God more than this pain all over my body. What do you trust more, the pain or the promise? And I think the only way we can really understand that statement is to look at the cross and just think of Jesus prayer the night before Mark 13 45 Abba father he cried out everything is possible for you please take this cup of suffering away from me yet I want your will to be done not mine though you slay me yet I will trust in you and on the cross, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, and if you read the entire psalm, you get an insight into what Jesus' experience was. I'll just read a couple selections. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. 
My life is poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. What do you do when God has promised salvation, but you're pinned to a cross? What do you do when you are the king of creation, but people see the sign king of the Jews and think, what a big joke? What do you do when that gap between the promise of God to save and, uh, and the resurrection is filled with a gap of infinite suffering? And what did Jesus do? He trusted in God's promises. He praised him for his promises. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after three long days in the darkness of the cold tomb, the promises broke in. Hope pierced into that darkness. And the wounds of Jesus became testaments to God's faithfulness. That his promises always come true. And what had looked just a few days earlier like abject failure, another revolutionary crushed by Rome, show that God's promises describe a reality that is deeper than what we see. The promises run deeper than the nails. And one day, the cross of your life will shed all of its splinters and be revealed as a throne of glory. And one day, the Egypt that we live in will give way to a heavenly Jerusalem where there's no more death or sorrow or pain. And so what is it you're holding on to right now in the gap? Are you holding on to your ability to fix it? Your ability to take care of yourself, your money, your success, others' praise? Are you trying to make it through in, in, in things that may be rising rapidly and you're trusting, but will one day be revealed to be a bigger bubble than Utah house prices? Are you holding on to your pain? You're so wrapped up in your pain, you can't look beyond your own suffering. Or are you holding on to his promises? Romans 8. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise. Are you holding to that? Are you praising him for that? And even if those promises feel like the, the tiniest little handhold that you can barely wrap your fingertips on and you're like, there's no way I can stay in, uh, held on to this. Realize that those little handholds are connected to God who is our rock. And anything else that you're trying to hold on to right now, your success or your failures, your accomplishments or your pain, one day that will all erode and be no more and you'll be left with no foundation. But God, our rock, will not have moved a millimeter. And so today, even in the darkness... Praise him for his promises. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a people of praise even when the darkness is fast closing.
when we are surrounded by pain every day, whether the pain of our failing and aging bodies, the pain of suffering that others have caused on us, the pain we've brought upon ourselves, when hope seems to have died, when our life looks totally different than what we've dreamed of, when we feel stuck, when we feel like we're living in a situation where we just have more demands put on us, no way to accomplish them, and in the end people just think it's because we're lazy or screwed up. Father, help us to realize that your promises are something that we can hold on to no matter where we are, that they're always present, and they're actually, more, they're actually stronger, and they're more real than whatever else we face, because those things will wash away, and your promises will stand firm, and one day they'll become sight. Help us to live that way, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.